Good. Well, I want to share with you today uh, from God's Word. God has always has power and strength for us in His Word. He's got direction. He's got wisdom for us in His Word. So we're going to go to it today. But before we do that, I just want to share from my heart a little bit. I'm a, I'm a fairly decisive person in life. Most of the time, make good decisions. Recently, I hit a point in my life where I was struggling to make a decision. Not just a good decision, any decision. I was, I was in Walmart on the toilet paper aisle. And I'm a guy, when I purchase things, I buy the cheapest thing available, and usually that's by cost per ounce when it comes to food. I'm going to buy the generic or the sub-generic brand for, of anything I can get. Like, if you're selling me meat, I don't care what kind of meat it is. If it's cheaper, I'm buying it, right? I'm the, the cheap guy. So, but, but the problem with toilet paper is that it's hard to compare because this one is a bigger roll, and this one is triple ply. You're like, I'm probably going to use less triple ply, right, than single ply. And so I'm trying to figure it out. And so literally, I will spend... 10, 15 minutes of the precious time God has given me on this earth, walking up and down the toilet paper aisle like a psychopath trying to figure out what toilet paper I should buy. Now, some of you can't relate to that. You just buy Charmin, whatever, ultra thick, soft stuff because you, you enjoy a good you know, wiping experience. Some of you just know you have your, your brand name people. Um, but, but some of you in life understand what I go through on the toilet paper aisle of having trouble making decisions, having trouble about knowing what to do. Should I or should, some of you struggle just to get out of bed. You're like, should I get out of bed today or not? That's really, do I, should I, is it today or not? Some of you struggle with trying to decide, should I date this person or not date this person? Like he's asked me on a date, should I go with him? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, some of us in, in, in marriages have, have wrestled with, should we have a kid or not? Is it time? It's like, is now the time? Doesn't seem like next year will be any better, but now it definitely doesn't feel like the time. Is this it? Should we go forward right now? Maybe buying a house? You're like, interest rates, is, that a good, is it a good time? Do I have the money for it? Do I want to have the responsibility for it? I don't want to keep, I don't want to stay in this apartment anymore. And you're wrestling with it. I know a lot of us have this question about jobs. Is it time to switch? I hate my job, but I hated my last job before that too. Will I hate my next job? Is it time to get a new job? Can I make more money? Am I okay making less money if it's a better work environment? And you're wrestling with the decisions on the toilet paper aisle, trying to figure out what do I get? What do I do? And in life, often we struggle to make decisions. And when I struggle to make a decision, uh, you know, I'm always asking God, what do you want me to do? And trying to follow his will. I always want him just to tell me what to do. Anybody with me on that? It's like, God, if you just tell me, I'd do it. I don't care how hard it was. If you were just like, go here, I would go. Just tell me what to do. And he rarely is that clear. In fact, he's never been that clear with me. And then I look at the Bible and God is so clear a lot of the time. He's just like in people's face, just like this is what to do. And they go do it. I'm like, God, can you not do that for me sometime? Like, just once in my life, I just want God to be like, go. With my luck, I'm going to be on the toilet paper aisle. And God's going to be like, Charmin, ultra soft, quadruple ply, enjoy your life. And I'm like, thank you, God. I'm going to go over that today. God, could you just communicate clearly to me in my life what you want me to do? We're in the book of Acts right now. If you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 16. Here's what's happening right at this moment. Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey. And God gave them amazing success. They started churches, they shared the gospel, they came back. Last week, we talked about a council they went down to in Jerusalem where the topic that they talked about, the board meeting for the church, was about circumcision. Go back on the podcast and listen to that if you missed it. And then what happens is Paul and Barnabas, these two ministry partners, decide to go on another missionary journey. But they get in a fight. They start arguing because there was one guy who came with them earlier who, who ended up leaving them partway through. And Paul is a really hard-nosed, intense guy. He's like, you can't keep up then you can't come with us. 
this time again. And Barnabas is a, is a very encouraging guy. He's like, no, let's bring John Mark with us. Let's bring him along. And so Paul and Barnabas actually split up as ministry partners because of this. Isn't that encouraging? Like even these great men of the Bible are fighting, right, about relationships and stuff. That's encouraging. And so Paul gets a new ministry partner named Silas. And so Paul and Silas go on the second missionary journey. So here's where we're gonna pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse six. Paul and Silas are on mission together, traveling around to churches, and this is what it says. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then when they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging them, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that, the gospel, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is what happened. So God gives a clear vision to Paul. Go to Macedonia, the thing he won't do for me. God and I have a little, have a little talk right now about that. God gives him a clear vision. Go to Macedonia. Which, which he'd never been to before, he was in Europe. So he goes to Macedonia like God tells him to do. When he gets there, this is what the rest of the chapter's about. They encounter this lady who's going out to pray near this place called Philippi. They share the gospel with her. She, her name's Lydia. She's very wealthy at the time. She was into fashion. She, she had clothing that she sold, and she had a lot of money because of that. And she became a Christian, and her whole household did too. All the people who lived with her and worked with her became Christians as well. And then Paul and, Bar Paul and Silas now are going one day to worship, and this woman comes behind them, a young girl, and she has, a, she has what's called a spirit of divination. This means that she has a, an evil, unclean spirit where she can predict the future. And, and literally in the Greek, it says a python spirit. The reason it says this is because back in Greek mythology, there was a big snake that was connected with the god Apollo. If you've ever heard of the oracle at Delphi, this was back, someone people would go to to have prophecies given to them back in the Greek times. The, she was connected to Apollo and to this python, this big snake. And so what, what the, Luke is telling us in Acts is that this, this woman was possessed by the same kind of spirit that possessed the oracle at Delphi as well. It's a, it's a spirit that can give you predictions into the future. And she starts following around behind Paul and Silas, saying that they are servants of the Most High God and and Paul gets really frustrated with this because he doesn't want to be connected to false worship and false idols and false gods and demons. And so he gets so frustrated by this, he turns around and he casts the unclean spirit out of her. Now, she was actually owned, she was a slave. She was owned by a couple guys who profited off of her. They would have people come give them money and then she would tell them what was going to happen in the future. And they got really angry because once you start messing with people's money, you got, you know, you got trouble. And so they actually get really angry. They go to the authorities. They try to start a riot, and they get Paul and Silas arrested. So now Paul and Silas are sitting in jail. It's like, thanks, God, for the vision you gave us to come over here. They're sitting in jail, and it says it's at midnight. They're sitting in jail, and they're singing hymns and praising God. They're just having a concert. I imagine it's a little doo-wop kind of thing. You know, they got two other prisoners, and they had a little quartet, the doo-wop, the Buddha, you know, whatever they do. And they started worshiping God. And they were praising God and singing hymns to him. And at that moment, a massive earthquake came, opened up all the doors, burst off all the things that were holding them back, and they could have run away, but they didn't. The jailer who was there, he was probably a retired Roman soldier, comes out. He thinks he sees all the, all the doors open. He freaks out because he thinks that, man, they've all escaped. And if they'd all escaped, his life was over. So who's going to do what he thought was the honorable thing and kill himself with his sword? 
But before he could do that, Paul and Silas come out and say, hey, we're all here, we're all here. And then they share the gospel with him and him and everyone in his household, all of his kids and all the servants and everyone else becomes Christians as well once they hear the gospel. And then the next day, Paul and Silas are still in prison. You know, they shared the gospel and they go back to prison. How would that be? It's like, hey, let's show you about Jesus. Now, can you put us back in the stocks, please? They go back into prison. Uh, But Paul had a a secret ace up his sleeve. He was a Roman citizen, and it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen and imprison them without a trial. And so he tells the authorities, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. So they, they say, well, you can be released. He says, no, I want you to come and apologize to me and escort me out of here. So then the big, you know, the governor and everybody's really scared because they can get in trouble for beating a Roman citizen. They come up and let Paul and Silas out. They're free to go. And Paul and Silas encourage and build up the church. Now, this is all awesome because the God, God had led them to this place. The book of Philippians in the Bible is written to these people who had become Christians during this time. And Paul, that is Paul's most joyous letter. He's just joyful as he's telling them what's going on and he's excited about them. These people brought so much joy into Paul's life. Not only that, but in the letter of Philippians, he says, and you were the only church from Macedonia who supported me financially in my missions work. So Paul got missionary support out of that as well. What an amazing thing. God led, told him where to go, led him to this place. They see amazing ministry. And then these people become a blessing to Paul. They start supporting him. That's a win. It's a win, win, win. It's an even bigger win than that though. This is the first time that the Christian missionaries went from modern day Turkey and Syria, where they had been to this point, over to Macedonia, which is part of Europe. And Europe becomes, centuries down the road, the first people to have a mass sending of missionaries. America primarily comes out of Europe in terms of our founding fathers. And America has been the greatest force for the gospel in the history of the world. And it all comes back to Paul following Jesus, telling him to go to Macedonia. I had a friend back in in seminary when I was preparing to be a pastor named Alhamdu Tukura. He was a Nigerian pastor from northern Nigeria, a very amazing guy, awesome guy. One time we were in a class together talking about missions and how we should do it as a church and what we should do, and he made this statement that I would never say, um, I would never feel comfortable saying in that context, but he could say it. He said, after the apostles, the American church has done more for the gospel in this world than anything else that has ever existed. I thought, wow, that's, that's really big. All of that goes back to this leap of faith Paul takes in following what God has said. All goes back to that. Which is great until I start to ask the question, okay, God, why can't you do that for me? Like, I would love to change the world. I would love for people to start supporting me financially. I would love to have great relationships and joy. Like, I would love this. I'd love to get to travel across the Aegean Sea and get to see all the sights over there. I'd love to do that, God. Can you just tell me, can like, I have a vision and God's like, I want you to go down to Tahiti and just spend a few months just there. I'm gonna give you people to support you in that. Like, I will bless that. It's like, yes, Jesus, come on, bring it, Lord. Like right now, why can't that happen to me? Has anyone else ever asked that? Why, God, why can't you make it clear? I wanna give you three principles from this story that help us understand how God leads and will help us actually follow God's leading for our lives. Here's the first big idea I want you to grab onto. We should live our lives at the limit of what God has already told us. We should live our lives at the limit of what God has already told us. This is exactly what Paul is doing. We see him, and when I look at this story, I see God told him what to do. No, 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 no. Back in Acts chapter 13, God said, I want you to go out on a mission for me with Barnabas. 
So Paul goes, since that moment, we don't have any record in the Bible of the Holy Spirit guiding specifically Paul's life in any way. He gets up when he's called on mission. He goes through Cyprus. He goes through, up through modern-day Turkey to all these places. He casts out demons. He does miracles. He stands up against false prophets. He's beaten. At one point, he is stoned. They try to kill him by throwing stones at him, and he keeps going. He keeps going. We're never told that God gave him a strategy of how to do his ministry. God just told him to go. So he goes, and he creates a strategy. He goes into a major city. He shares the gospel, plants a church there, and from that then he uses those people to evangelize the areas around. God never gave him the strategy that we're told. He just does it. He keeps going. He comes all the way back to Jerusalem. God still hasn't given him specific direction. And then he goes, down to, he goes down to Jerusalem because he wants to stand up against a false gospel. God never told him to do that. He just knows, I need to do this. God's told me to be on mission for him. I'm gonna do this. He comes all the way back to Antioch and he's there and he decides to go on another missionary journey. It doesn't say in the Bible that God told him to go on a second missionary journey. He just knew God has given me a mission. I'm going to fulfill it. Paul has lived all of this life, has done all of these things, has faced all of these challenges, and we're never told once that God has given him specific direction. God said, go, and he has kept going. Paul was living his life at the limit of what God had told him. He was doing everything God had told him, and once he was doing that, God gave him more specific direction. Back early on when we had first started Foundry a few years ago, oh, I had a number of younger people coming up to me saying, hey, I don't feel like I'm growing enough. I don't feel like I'm learning enough here. Uh, it's not deep enough for me. And I thought, man, you guys have really surpassed me because this is, this, is, this is about the limit of my depth, but it wasn't deep enough for these young Christians. And then I started realizing something, and that is they were seeking knowledge, but not seeking a deeper life with Jesus. So they, they were seeking more knowledge about the Bible, maybe even more theological knowledge, both of which are good things, but they weren't walking in obedience. So when someone would come up to me, I'd start to say this. Well, that's good. I want to help you go deeper. Let me ask you, are you daily reading your Bible? Most of them weren't. If they were, I said, are you daily praying? All right, if you're doing that, are you serving in the church? Do you have accountability in a group? Are you fasting weekly? And that's where I really got them. Are you fasting weekly? <laughs> are you tithing to the church? Are you actively evangelizing and sharing the gospel with unchurched people in your life? And the answer to most, if not all of those questions was no. Well, then don't be surprised if you're not growing because you're not obeying what Jesus has already taught you to do. And if you're not doing that, why would you expect to be able to go deeper in other ways? And if you're doing all those things and you have a heart for Jesus, you will grow. There's no way you don't. So many of us don't wanna live at the limit of what God's already told us. We want to go halfway, and then we want God to give us some special vision or word or insight. Live at the limit of what God has already told you. There's a quote that's attributed to a missionary named Jim Elliott. I don't know if it's from him or not. I can't find the source. But I like the quote, so I'm going to say it's from Jim Elliott. And the quote is, you don't need a voice if you have a verse. You don't need a voice from God if he has given you a verse in Scripture. God's word in the Bible is just as much God's word as God's word to you in a vision or a dream or a prophetic word. And so you don't need God to say, love people well. You don't need God to say, husbands, love your wives. You don't need God to say, you need to serve and give to me. You don't need God to say that because he's already said it. And if you're not doing the things God, God's already said, why would God say more? He's waiting on you to do the things he's already asked you to do. John Wesley put it like this. John Wesley said, beware of religious experience. 
without Bible study and constant prayer? How many of us are seeking God to say something and do something in our lives when we're not even going to his word and going in prayer and learning from him? Somebody needs to hear that. I'm gonna say it again. Beware of religious experience without Bible study and constant prayer. You want God to speak to you? Go to his word and let him speak to you. Go in prayer and let him speak to you. And then trust him. If he's got more to say, then you'll be ready to hear it when he finally does say it. So Paul's first thing, principle we can learn from his life is Paul was living at the limit of what God had said to him. Here's the second thing we see. Denials often lead to direction. So in Paul's life, this is what we see. In verse six, chapter 16, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, Galatia, listen to this, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, what a weird command from the Spirit. The Spirit said, go on mission for me. So they're going, they're preaching in, in this whole area. When it says Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia, what we know today as Turkey. So they're going all around Turkey, preaching the gospel, and suddenly the Holy Spirit says, don't speak the word anymore. And they're like, okay. And we're not told how the Holy Spirit communicated this. We're just told the Holy Spirit said, don't preach the gospel anymore as you go through. So they kept going, they kept traveling along, wasting their time, not being able to preach anywhere. When they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go north up into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. We're not told again what happened. What it seems like here is it's less that he communicated, he didn't forbid them, he just created some obstacle in their path and did not allow them to go forward. So they're trying to do what Jesus said to do and he says, no, don't do it. They keep trying to do what Jesus said to do. He says, no, don't do it. Many of us have experienced this kind of guidance from God. We don't like it. It's not as fun as a vision, but we have experienced God's denial in our lives. Don't do this. And often, in my experience, in the experience of many Christians throughout history, God will lead you more often through denial than he will clear direction. So this is what our responsibility is. We need to embrace God's denial in our lives. When you have that disappointment and that house you were gonna get falls through, trust that that is God's grace at work in your life. He is leading you towards where he wants you to go. Trust that when that relationship doesn't work out, that God is leading you forward where he wants you to go. Trust that when you get fired from your job, even though you did not do anything wrong, if, you've, if you didn't do your job, that's on you at that point, but if you didn't do anything wrong and you get fired, trust that God is at work even in that. We have the privilege as sons and daughters of a God, of the most high God, that we can interpret our lives through the perspective of heaven. We don't sit back and say, oh, stuff's just happening to me. Oh, it's just whatever, you know. We can understand that God, even though he didn't cause the evil in our lives, he is working through it. And we can see a denial even as a form of direction. I don't know if you guys have heard of the missionary David Livingston. He's one of the first great missionaries to Africa. He was a massive advocate for people who lived in Africa, he was anti-slavery advocate as well, but he never wanted to go to Africa. Back when he was a young man, he heard this call that we need more physicians, we need more doctors in China. There's an openness to the gospel right now, we need more physicians in China. So you know what he did? He decided to go to med school. He wasn't on track to go to med school, he wasn't planning to be a doctor, but he heard about the need, he's like, yeah, I can probably hack it in med school, how hard could it be? And so he goes to med school. God help him. He probably had no idea. Like second year, he's like, Lord, are you calling me somewhere else? Like, can you call me to be a worship leader or something? Like anything else except for this? So he graduates from med school. This is 1838. He's about to go to China. And then in 1839, the first opium war broke out in China. Massive war taking place. He can't go. 
So imagine that. You've, heard, you've responded to God's call on your life to be a doctor, to go to China, and then God's like, nope, actually not that. So he's like, what do I do? So he learned about an opportunity where he could go to South Africa. So he travels to South Africa. He begins to travel north from South Africa. There's, that's a long way to go, right? You can go a long way in Africa, going north from South Africa. He starts going up, makes it further than anyone from outside of Africa has ever made it up begins to share the gospel. His whole mission was to equip local people, share the gospel with them, just like Paul did, and have them share the gospel with their people. And so he began to do this. And he became one of the greatest advocates for the continent of Africa, one of the first great missionaries to Africa, one of the greatest anti-slavery advocates in Africa through that. He didn't really do the doctor stuff very much. Sometimes God's, God's denial is his direction. And often God's denial leads us two direction. Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas, got no, no. Then they got a yes. This is how the yes came. Verse nine. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, this is pretty cool guidance here. I've never had a vision like this. I realized in studying this passage this week that I've, I've always kind of actually had a mental image of what this looked like. And it just hit me recently what it was. And this is the mental image I had. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, this is a native Macedonian man in traditional garb. <laughs> Very beautiful Macedonian man, might I add. It's from Star Wars, okay? For those of you, like two of you who didn't realize that. So this is, this is when Princess Leia says, you know, help us or help me, Obi-Wan, uh, you're our last hope or something like that. And Anyway, so get that off the screen here. That's going to be distracting. Everybody else is going to be focused on that, on Princess Leia here. It's something like that, though, appeared, right? A vision appeared. This man, Paul, knew he was from Macedonia. And Paul's like, oh, okay. Like, it was what he was wearing or maybe his accent he had. Paul understands this man is from Macedonia, and he's saying, help us. We need your help. And so they decide to go. Now, I want to talk about visions for a second, because for a lot of us, visions are a weird or strange or something that doesn't happen very, rare, or very often. It's very rare. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, visions and dreams are one of the marks that come when the Holy Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is, is preaching. This is when the Holy Spirit first came on the church. is preaching, and he's saying, he's quoting from Joel, the prophet Joel. And it says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams. Part of what the Holy Spirit coming means is that we have dreams and visions of God's direction for our lives. It's a little weird. In fact, recently, not too long ago, I was talking to a lady, pretty charismatic lady. Uh, she, and there's actually a couple, this is dangerous, a couple charismatic ladies were trying to convince me to date this girl. Right? It's like, it's dangerous, partly because they're charismatic ladies and partly because they might have God on their side. You know, I'm not sure here. <laughs> and so they try to convince me one day to do this. I'm like, yeah, you know, I do the whole, yeah. Okay, the next day, this lady comes back and she's like, hey, a while back I had a vision. And I'm like, okay, here we go. She said, I had a vision, and I, it, was, it was in this church where we were at the time. She said, it was in this church, and I'm realizing now that the guy in the vision is actually you. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm open, cautious, but open. And she says, and then, I, then there, you were with this girl, and the, the, the girl, they're trying to convince me to date this girl. I said, and the girl's name was Molly. She's like, so I think that's pretty clear. God's telling you to date this girl. And I said, the girl's name isn't Molly. It was something else that sounded close to Molly. I said, you told me yesterday her name was something different. And the lady's like, oh, yeah. And she was really disappointed. 
And I was like, what is going on here? I felt very almost led by the spirit and then very manipulated, right? I'm not sure. A lot of emotions going on right here. I have a natural skepticism or caution around dreams and visions. I believe the spirit works in this way because the Bible says it and the Bible shows it. But I have a caution around it. Here's something important to realize in the New Testament about dreams and visions. When a dream or vision comes, it always is accompanied by the interpretation. So Peter has a vision, this, this, and at first you don't get the interpretation. It's this sheets down with all these unclean animals, and Paul's a Jewish man, would not eat the unclean animals. This happens several times, and it's, it says, take and eat, take and eat. And, and Peter's like, no, I'm a Jew, I can't do that. And then at the end, God interprets it for him. He says, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. He's preparing him to go to the Gentile people. When Ananias has this vision, this dream, and God says, go, and I want you to pray for Paul that he's healed of his, his blindness and pray for the Holy Spirit to come on him. Ananias knows immediately what God is trying to say. It's very clear. At every point in the New Testament where a follower of Jesus wants, he has a vision or a dream or even someone close to Jesus because Joseph has a dream and God tells him specifically what to do, the Magi, who were not Christians, they were from somewhere else who came to see Jesus and give him gifts, they have a dream and God specifically says, go home by a different way, don't go back by the same way. Over and over again, dreams and visions have a very clear specific, God-given interpretation. Now, I believe that you can have some symbolic dreams or visions, but be very cautious with those. And don't think that every time you have a dream that's really weird or vivid, that that is from God. Because often, all of the evidence we have from the Bible, from the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit has come, is that when you have a dream or a vision, God brings the interpretation in the dream or vision. Again, God can work beyond that, but that's the example we have over and over again. Another thing to realize is that in the Old Testament, there are lots of dreams and visions that, have to re that require interpretation. But these almost all the time are coming to people who are not strong followers of God or they're coming to pagan kings. And the Holy Spirit can't speak directly to them. He has to speak through this, this weird dream or vision. So when the Holy Spirit comes to his people, he clarifies and interprets the dream or vision all the time in scripture. I'm not saying he can't do it other than that. That's just what we see in the Bible so that should be our baseline, our expectation for God's dreams or visions. I wanna give you three examples of dreams or visions to help you understand how this works. One is pretty mundane and pretty boring, but still powerful. One of them is, is very credible because of its source. One of them is how God is most frequently using dreams and visions around the world today. Here's the first one, it's my dad. My grandmother, when she was in her 80s, uh, she, had been, she, had, she had been single, a widow for 17 years, had an old high school sweetheart come a-calling. Just, just popping up, show, saying hi, dropping by. And she told her kids about it, her family about it, and said, but nothing's gonna happen. It's old Adrian, he's just, you know, he's just reliving the glory days, you know, and she was the glory days. It's, nothing's gonna happen here. <laughs> and then a couple months later, she tells the family, oh, Adrian and I are getting married. And the whole family was like, what? Where did that come from? We're not okay with that. That's probably not good. Is there, like, what financially, what does this mean? This is weird. And so everyone, no, everyone was against it. Everyone was like, Janice, my grandma Janice, you're crazy, okay? Everyone was against it. But she was going forward, because when you're in love, even as an 80-year-old, you're in love, okay? And they just decided to move forward. So my dad is really feeling responsibility here, and like, what do I do? And he's just concerned about it, concerned about his mom and what this means. And so he goes to sleep one night, and in his dream, he, he doesn't remember specifics of what happened in the dream, if anything, 
But God told him, this is my provision for your mom. He woke up, had total peace about it because God had spoken clearly to him in a dream. My dad's not charismatic. My dad probably has never had another dream or vision, period, in his life. And God spoke to him clearly through that. Mundane, boring, how God works. God gave him peace in that time. Here's the credible one. I don't know if you've heard the name Ben Carson. Grew up in an underprivileged environment, high crime area, struggled, didn't have good schooling, but worked his butt off, worked really hard, made his way to Yale. So he's pre-med at Yale, some of the best and brightest students in the nation. And he's struggling to keep up. He's got this inferiority complex. He's not sure if he can do it. And it gets to the end of the first semester, and he is struggling, especially in chemistry. He just can't figure it out. He just can't do it. He's studying. It's midnight. He's been studying. He's a Christian. He feels like Jesus has brought him to Yale, has raised him up, but he's about to fail. He goes to bed that night. He writes about this in his autobiography, Gifted Hands. He goes to bed that night and says, Jesus, I'm sorry. I failed you. He goes to sleep. That night in his dream, kind of this nebulous dream figure comes in to a classroom where Ben's sitting and begins to write on the board some chemistry problems. And so Ben, being a good student, even in his dream, starts taking notes of the problems and the solutions and the answers. He wakes up the next day, thinks, wow, I was up too late studying last night. But he goes ahead and writes down some of this stuff, goes in for his test that morning. He's about to fail. He opens up the test booklet And the first question was the first question that the dream figure had drawn on the board. Flips forward, page after page after page, it is all of the questions the dream figure had written on the board. How do you like cheating when God is the one who helps you cheat? (laughs) God said, hey, let me pass my answer sheet over to you. And most of those from memory, he was able to write down. He got a 97 on the test, which did two things. It allowed him to stay in med school, continue on, and it gave him a confidence that he had a divine destiny at work in his life. At the age of 33, he became the youngest chief of pediatric neurosurgery at any hospital in the nation. By the age of 50, time had named him one of the top 20 medical professionals in the nation. And in 2008, he was given a Presidential Medal of Freedom for all that he had done. He's a great man of God, and he points back to that moment and that dream as divine intervention. I say it's credible because he would have no reason to make that up. It makes it seem a little kooky, maybe, But he's not taking credit for himself. He's saying, this is what happened, and I'll I'll praise to God for doing it. Here's the third one. This is how God is most most often using dreams and visions in this world. A young lady named Astrin, who lives in northern Iran, uh, she, she hated the Ayatollah, the leader of Iran, because six of her cousins had been killed by the Ayatollah. And then she was accused of crimes she did not commit and forced to sign a declaration of her guilt. And she hated the Ayatollah and the Iranian government so much more. All her life, she'd gone to the mosque and prayed to Allah and had never heard Allah speak back to her. And she was confused, and she was frustrated, and she was about to join the Kurdish militia fighting back against the Iranian government. She felt like that was her only option. The problem was the Kurdish militia was communist. They denied the existence of God. So she made a deal with God. She said, seven days, speak to me, or I'm denying you forever. The Persian word is, I'm going gar. Gar is, I'm gonna be upset and furious with you forever. I'm denying you you don't come through. Night seven, it's about to be over. She says, God, we made this deal, or at least I made it with you. If you don't show up tonight, I'm done with you forever. She goes to sleep. In her dream, she's in this room, and she sees Isa, which is the Muslim name for Jesus, 
Jesus is referred to in the Quran as a prophet, as a holy person, but not as the son of God. She sees Isa leaning up against the wall with this light around him. And she goes up to Isa and she says, I need to talk with God. He looks back at her and he says, talk. She says, no, no, I need to talk with God. And Jesus in the dream says, talk. And then he repeats three times these three words slowly, I am God. I am God. I am God. And in that moment, all the doubt went away. And she knew that Jesus was God. She didn't understand it, but she knew Jesus was God. She wakes up and goes down to her mosque and tells the leader there what happened. And he got angry at her. That's not right. She told her family. They laughed at her. She was sitting on a park bench not too long after, far away from her home. And a stranger she didn't know walked up who was a Christian and handed her a Bible in Persian so she could read it. She's reading it. She gets to John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And she realizes that Jesus is God. And to know God, she has to trust in Jesus and what he has done. She becomes a Christian. As of today, she still lives in northern Iran and has planted five churches. Over and over again, throughout the Islamic world, God speaks through dreams and visions. In their culture, they're open to that. God doesn't speak to you and to me as much because we're not open to how he wants to speak to us. God speaks through dreams and visions into the common things with credibility, and he's doing it to bring people who are far from God close to him. So the first thing we need to do is we need to live at the limit of what God has already told us. The second thing we need to do is we need to embrace denial because it often leads to direction. Here's the third thing. The third thing is we have to realize that the Holy Spirit never tells us everything. So we have to obey what we do know. Here's what happens in the final verse we're going to talk about today. And when Paul had seen the vision, verse 10, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is key. Paul did not automatically just take off to Macedonia. It said immediately, but there's a key word in there. They left to go to Macedonia, concluding, the Greek word for that is sumbibadzo, which means to bring something together or to uh, understand something by pulling different ideas together. The idea is that they had to, to, to sift through and say, is this really God? They had to look at what was going on. Okay, we got to know here. We got to know here. We have this vision. Okay, we're concluding that God is leading us. It wasn't as clear to them as we think it was. They had to conclude this. I was talking to uh, someone yesterday, a friend of mine yesterday on the phone, and this person is facing a challenging, complex situation, but they've recently received a prophetic word from someone they trust and they value their insight, and this person gave them a word that seems like it might apply to the situation. How do you like that for clarity from God? And if he follows this word, it's gonna be very challenging for him, but it seems like that's where God is leading based on this prophetic word. He's uncertain about all this. And so I said, you need some sumbabadzo in your life? And he said, what? And I said, you need to look around at what else God is doing. Don't just take a prophetic word, but look at what God is doing. Pull it together and see where God is moving and follow where God is moving. By the end of the conversation, this was not me. This was him listening to the Spirit. He began to have peace about what direction he should go. As he looked at what God was doing, what he had led, how he had denied, he was living at the, the limit of what God had said already, and God began to lead him forward. I'm not sure exactly where the situation will go. I'm curious to see where it ends up. We need to conclude based on things in our lives. When God gives us a word, conclude what we're supposed to do and then walk forward in it. Often when I'm making a decision, you know how you come to a pre-decision on your decision? Like you got a deadline, Saturday I've got to have my decision made. But like by Tuesday, you kind of know. 
But sometimes you got to act like you don't know. You know. Sometimes you're like, yeah, I don't know. But emotionally, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that thing. I'm, I'm definitely going to do it. And that's okay. What, what I start doing, when I start to land emotionally on a decision, I tell God. I say, hey, God, I am about to do this thing. And I, I sense, I prayed, I fasted, I've done what you've said to do. I sense this is what you want me to do. But if it's not, change me. Change my heart, change my mind. He's done this numerous times in my life. Change my direction, help me think a different thought, help me to conclude in a different kind of way. And God is faithful to do that. So here, here's, the, here's where all this comes together. We need to live at the limit of what God has already told us. We need to accept God's denials, often leading us to direction. And then we need to recognize that the Spirit doesn't always clearly speak, so when he speaks, we obey. This is what happened when they obeyed. God didn't say where to go in Macedonia. He didn't say how to get there. He didn't say what to do once you got there. He said, go to Macedonia. You realize Macedonia is a country. It's like God telling you, like, go to China, and you're like, there's a billion people here. What, or do, what do you want me to do? So guess where they go next? Neapolis. Yeah, you were going to guess that. They would go to Neapolis. Why did they go to Neapolis? Is it because God said to? Is it because that has a shining light on it when they started pulling up to it on the boat? No. Neapolis was the closest place to where they were currently in Macedonia. They just went to the closest place. And you know what they did next? They got on the road and they started walking. And they came to this place called Philippi, which was the next closest big city to Neapolis. And God moved there. God doesn't tell you everything, but he tells you enough for you to obey. And so in your life, you should be seeking God's clarity around obedience. God, what do you want me to do? You should pray and seek dreams and visions. I believe God will bring more dreams and visions as we're open to that. But you should live to the limit of what he's already told you. Obey him. When he says no, you should trust that as his direction. And then you should know he's never going to make it all clear because he wants you to have faith, not certainty. He wants you to have a relationship with him and dependency on him. So obey what he's made clear, what he's already said. And as we do that, we're going to be able to live like Paul lived. It's not complicated. For Paul, it also wasn't clear. It was simple. We rely on God. We do what he says. We listen to him. We're open to how he communicates to us, and we obey whatever he says. How do you need to obey Jesus based on what he has already said to you? Or where do you need to seek the guidance of Jesus in your life? Through dreams and visions.